Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. I've entitled this Truth Talk, Living in the End of the Age. Dramatic weather changes, pandemics, economic woes, and then the Russian invasion of the Ukraine have prompted many Christians to wonder afresh if we are now living in the end of the age. In February 2021, I wrote on the subject, and I also did a podcast, under the title of, Are These the End of the Days? And I quoted there from what Jesus said and did. And the main source of his teaching on the end times, of course, is found in Matthew chapter 24. And in this current truth talk, I want to provide further insights into this important message and this important passage of Scripture. This chapter of Matthew's Gospel is not easy to understand, actually, yet it is essential to providing any meaningful answer to the question many are asking again in these days. It would be very helpful if you had your Bible open, if you are able to, as I talk, and you turn to Matthew 24 and follow along with me. Otherwise, you just might get a little bit lost, and I wouldn't like that to happen. Okay, the chapter starts with the disciples asking Jesus a compound question. But the complication is that it is not immediately obvious just how many parts the question contains. Is it one or two or even three? And how we understand Jesus' response depends quite a bit on how many questions we think he is addressing. Another difficulty is in verse 14, which has, And then the end will come. But counterbalanced against this is verse 34, which says, This generation, then the end will come, this generation not passing away. He says, This generation will not pass away until everything spoken has been completed. So, what's the actual time period in view here? Is it the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Or is it the second coming of Jesus sometime after 2021 into the future? What is it? Or is it both? Now, these two examples point to the main problem that confronts us. Is Jesus speaking about events less than just four decades, 40 years into the future from when he's actually saying it? Or is he speaking about events that are thousands of years in the future? Or is he speaking about both? Now, there are several systems of interpretation that affect how we answer this question. You know, theologians love to create names for their ways of thinking and then to gather together various texts and ideas under their chosen heading. And the study of the end times, which they call eschatology, is no exception to this. When it comes to Matthew 24, there are at least three schools of thought that have been adopted. Firstly, there is the preterist, some people pronounce it preterist, school, who see the whole of Matthew 24 as referring to the period between AD 33 and AD 70. In other words, they say that no, Jesus was just talking about things which were just about to happen, just, you know, months and years from when he's saying. The second school is called the Futurist School, and that holds that all of chapter 24 concerns just the events immediately prior to Jesus' second coming sometime in the far distant future. And then thirdly, the Historicists believe that the whole church age, all of it from 
the crucifixion and life of Jesus and his crucifixion and ascension, resurrection and ascension, right through to his second coming and the judgment, all of that is in view to one extent or another in Matthew 24. So, what should we do? Should we adopt for one of these systems? Or should we try to let the passage itself settle the matter? Well, I want to take that approach. Right, returning to the disciples' question. To understand Jesus' answer, we must obviously understand the questions he was answering. He and his disciples had just been in the temple courts where he had confronted the teachers of the law and pronounced seven dreadful woes upon them. He concluded his diatribe with the words, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. You'll find that in Matthew 23, 35. Wow, yeah, strong stuff, right? He then left the temple, and as he was walking away, his disciples came up to him and called his attention to the buildings. They said, do you see all these things? They asked. Now Jesus replies, I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That's in Matthew 24, 1 to 2. So they were basically saying, hey, Lord, you've been saying all this stuff about these these Pharisees and the temple and all that. Hey, look at these huge rocks. Are you trying to tell us that all this is going to be cast down? Then from there, they all went, Jesus and his party, up to the Mount of Olives, which is just to the east of Jerusalem. And there's where the disciples asked him this question. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? All right, so futurists teach that the disciples' inquiry actually consists of three separate questions rolled into one. Question one, when will the temple be destroyed? Question two, what will be the sign of your second coming, Lord? Question three, what will be the sign of the end of the age? So likely that's another separate event. Now this matches their eschatological system that requires a distinction between the second coming of Christ to gather up the church and a much later end-time judgment. You know, their whole thing that they've put together requires the belief that Jesus comes, gathers up his church, lifts up into heaven, down comes judgment, down comes the battle of Armageddon, all that stuff, and then Jesus comes again to sit in judgment. Now, I don't subscribe to that system. I believe it's seriously flawed in several ways. No, rather, I understand that the disciples' question contains just two parts. Part one, when will all this take place? They're referring to the destruction of the temple. And two, will there be any signs ahead of time to signal your return, Lord, and the end of the world? The the assumption here is that the return of Christ is uh, both to remove the remaining believers from earth and to judge all others followed immediately by the creation of a new heaven and earth. Now, the Lord Jesus answered both of these questions in detail. But the problem that we have is to work out just where in Matthew 24 he deals with each of these two questions. 
Some teachers, like Dr. Sam Storms, teach that almost all of the chapter concerns the period between the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but then he and others have to contend with several end-of-the-world references, like verses 29 to 31, that just don't fit the scheme. Others, like Tim LaHaye, quite a well-known author from the previous generation, make the whole chapter apply only to the very end of the age, end of time. But then they have to deal with verses like 34, you know, and uh, what Jesus was saying in Matthew 23, verses 36. How does that all fit together? Now, before I go any further, there are just some observations that I can make to help us to determine the structure of Matthew 24. How do we handle it? And here they are. One, the fact that much of what Jesus said is addressed to the disciples who were with him, but this does not, of course, preclude the fact that what he said also is relevant to future generations. That's a principle, by the way. The Bible is timeless. It applies to all generations. If Jesus is answering the question his disciples of that day, 2,000 years ago, are asking him, it must be applicable to them, right? But it must also be applicable to the future generations that come down the line. Otherwise, what is it useful? In what way is it useful to us in the 2022? So, of course, it does mean that what he said was indeed relevant to his original hearers, that's what I just said, within their time frame. So it's not just about the distant future, and it's not just about the immediate future when Jesus spoke it. Two, there is evidence of editing here, or at least of rearranging what Jesus said. For instance, the insert in verse 15, let the reader understand, you know, they didn't have it recorded when he said it, the, the writing of the Bible came later, so this insert, let the reader understand, has got to have been added in afterwards. And, of course, as well as the different narratives in the parallel accounts in Mark 13 and Luke 21, you put those together, you realize there's been some consolidation, some editing, some structuring, which came at a later time. This doesn't invalidate it, and it doesn't make it any less the inspired word of God. Three, the fairly obvious conclusion is that the disciples associated the destruction of the temple with the end of the age. They seem to, quite clearly to me anyway, be of the mindset which said, Lord, I, we know that when you come again, you'll destroy the temple and the end will come, all in one shot. You see, otherwise, why would they frame their composite question the way they did? Now, my understanding of the structure of the passage is that Jesus answered both parts of the question in a way that was very typical of teachers of his time, by dealing with one part of the question and then moving on to the other, and then coming back, looping back to the previous question and moving through various iterations of this until he had answered the whole thing. And we find this, by the way, in a lot of Paul's writings and in many parts of the Old Testament. So then, the structure that I discern in Matthew 24 is, and here's would be really helpful if you can refer to your Bible as I say this, that I've broken it up into five parts. Verses 4 to 14, which relate to the end of the age, and then verses 15 to 23, which relate to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and then back again to verses 23 and 33, which again relate to the end of the age, long future, 
And then the fourth part, verses 34 to 35, once again relating to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And then lastly, verses 36 to 51 relating to the end of the age. So you have three parts relating to the end of the age and two parts relating to the temple destruction in AD 70, like a sort of triple-decker sandwich here. And that kind of structure is very, very typical of his day. So let's deal with the parts that handle the destruction of the temple. Those are verses 15 to 23, and then verses 34 to 35. Those put them together, and then we deal with that. Now, most translations start verse 15 in a way that indicates that it is just a continuation of the previous paragraph. See, it starts, so when you see. However, the New Living Translation says this, the time will come when you will see, which allows the strong possibility that from the start, there's a new thought here. It's not just a continuation. It's starting a new thought. The underlying Greek text allows for either of these, by the way. So both versions of the Bible are perfectly accurate within the English language. But I think the NLT, the New Living Translation, gets it better. Yeah, more correct. Now, Jesus refers to an Old Testament prophecy, and he says, The time will come when you will see that what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. The reference is to Daniel 11.31 which signifies that the temple would be used for an abominable purpose at some point in the future, in Daniel's future, and that as a result, God's faithful people would no longer worship there. So great would be the moral revulsion and the contempt and the abhorrence that they would have for the sacrilege, and the temple would become desolate. Luke's account is a little different, and it reads as follows. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its destruction is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. There's a history which is produced by a man called Eusebius, and he records that when the Roman armies were marching on Jerusalem to seek to encircle Jerusalem and starve them out, that was before its ultimate destruction in AD 70. The Christian population in that city, Messianic Jews mainly, they took heed of Jesus' warning. They, they knew what Jesus had said. And they fled the city while they could. And they relocated in a unique hill town in Pella. I've been there. It's a strange and wonderful looking place. And it's sort of cut out of the side of the mountains. You see, the Roman soldiers carried the emblem, emblems and standards of Rome with them when they marched. And the Jews regarded as blasphemous and idolatrous these standards, these symbols, these pagan images. So when the troops later sacked Jerusalem and entered the temple and destroyed it, their presence and the emblems came into the holy place. And this was to the Jews an absolute abomination, the very thing that Daniel had warned against. Matthew 24, verse 21 has, 
Then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. The historic record shows this to be absolutely so. Prior to the siege of Jerusalem, the city was in turmoil with sects and gangs fighting with each other and murdering thousands of people. And when the Romans laid siege to the city, famine and disease was added to their dire condition. You know, there's an account of mothers eating their own children because they were starving. And tens of thousands of people dying from starvation. When the Romans breached the city walls, they systematically slaughtered all the remaining people in Jerusalem, except for about 100,000 whom they took into slavery. And the estimated deaths, according to the historians, were over 1 million people. And the slaughter was so great that the blood running in the streets actually extinguished some of the burning buildings which had been ignited by the soldiers. That's a horrific, apocalyptic image. No wonder Jesus said it's going to be something that the world has never seen. So horrific, so terrible. Jesus spoke to his disciples about this in AD 33. And all that he predicted concerning the destruction of the temple occurred just 37 years later, within one generation. And so this is why he said, I tell you the truth, this generation, he was talking to his disciples then and there, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. That's Matthew 24, 34. Okay, so now let's look at the parts which deal with the end of the age and the fullness of time. This is verses 4 to 14, 23 to 33, and verses 36 to 51. Although Jesus said to his disciples, uh, sorry, although what he said to his disciples obviously applied to the period from 33 AD to 70, it applies even more to us today. And he warned of the following. He said, there will be deception by false prophets and teachers claiming to represent him. One of the things he said all generations need to look out for, but particularly those living right at the end of the times, which I think is our time. He explained that part of the deception would be the performance of signs and wonders. And he also warned that these people would try to attract Christians to come to them so as to entrap them and deceive them. He used a powerful analogy when he said, so if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or, here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then he said, wherever there is a caucus, there the vultures will gather. Now, uh, we in Africa are very familiar with this phenomenon. When we see vultures circling in the air in the felt, then we know that they were indicating to us the presence, not of life, but of a carcass, a dead, smelling, rotten carcass. So no, when Jesus comes again, it will be obvious and as widely observable to all as lightning covering the whole horizon. Don't run this way to this great man who claims to be the message bearer from on high. Don't rush off to another country to, to listen to this titillating message. No. When Jesus comes, the whole world will know. It will be so obvious. 
In the last few decades, we have certainly seen and experienced all of these things playing out, haven't we? And it's intensifying. How many false miracle workers have we seen setting up shop in cities all around the world and beguiling people to come to them for healing, wealth, and influence? Gosh, I could tell you some stories from a pastoral perspective of the people I've had to deal with who have been lured away to other places to receive false healings by these deceitful men. The second thing Jesus said, there will be wars and news of pending wars. You know what? There have been more than 115 wars in various places on this globe during the last, how many years do you think? 30! 30, less than one generation, 115 wars, and many of them are still active. Thirdly, he said there will be famines and earthquakes. Now, war and famine go hand in hand, and the current invasion of Ukraine by Russia could well trigger famine in the developing world, in Africa particularly, and especially as climate change bites harder and harder, I think we're going to see a lot of famine. And earthquakes, well, we know. We know how many have been a problem in the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Fourth sign, he said, would be persecution and apostasy, the falling away of the saints from the faith. Now, living in the West or in South Africa, as is my case, it is quite hard to imagine the extent and severity of persecution actually taking place right now. But I've got a map and I'll give a reproduction of it in my article on truthistheword.com, showing the 50 countries, 5-0, where persecution is currently most prevalent. It is happening right now, folks. In countries across the globe, there is great persecution taking place. The fifth sign that he mentioned was strange and frightening signs in the heavens. All right. Of late, there have been many strange phenomena in our atmosphere and in the solar system. And the U.S. government is even reopening its investigative case into the appearance of UFO sightings. Now, I don't want to comment further on this subject, because you know, it kind of lies somewhere between the twilight zone and the unexplained actual occurrences, and also between that and the imaginations of some very creative people. So I don't want to go down that rabbit hole with you. But Jesus also gave two strong indications of the imminence of his coming and of the end of the age. When he said that the gospel would be preached to the whole world as a final testimony to all people, and that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. He used the analogy of a sprouting fig tree to indicate that when we see all these things that he had been talking about, we see them actually happening, then we will know that. It is near, he said, right at the door. However, he also warned, no man knows about the day or hour. But he did tell us it would be sudden. So our job is to look out and be perceptive and to say, we see these things building up, so surely the end must be close, but we don't know when. And we shouldn't even try and find out when, because we have a mandate, actually, to continue to live in faith. But I'll come to that in a minute. He gave us actually no instructions about anything different that we should do when we see these things, this swift approach of the end times. His essential message was to be ready to meet him and to be faithful stewards of his kingdom right up 
till the point where he comes again. You'll see that in verses 36 to 51. You know, there's no pillar in the mountains for us to flee to. There's no doomsday prepping that we can undertake. But there's a gospel to share. And there's a life to live faithfully in trust and obedience. It is more urgent than ever that we come to know Jesus, to become like him, and to help others to do likewise. Then the sixth and final sign that he gave was the gospel outreach and the sign of the Son of Man. Now, there are very few people groups in the world who have not yet heard a presentation of the gospel in some form or other. However, over and above that, genuine revival inevitably results in a powerful surge of people coming to know Jesus. And I believe that we are yet to see the greatest and most widespread revival that this planet has ever experienced. Perhaps a final act of divine grace before the end of the age. What will the sun of the Son of Man appearing in the sky be? I don't know. But it will be obvious to all people if indeed it has to have the result that Jesus spoke of when he said, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. I don't know what the sign of the Son of Man will be. I can guess, but it wouldn't be productive to do that now. But this I do know. It will be dramatic. It will be obvious to everybody living on this planet. So much so that the unsaved will look at this and say, Oh my goodness, we got it so wrong. Here comes the Lord Most High. And it will be ushering in his immediate appearance on earth. When his sign appears in the heavens, so he will be right at the door, about to come and to judge and to recreate. So are we living in the end of the age then? Well, I actually think we are approaching the time of the end when Jesus will come again and all people will be judged and God will create a new heaven and earth as He as his eternal abode and he can live with his children saved from every age. I do not think that the world conditions will get better, actually, although the end will probably come when everything appears to be really quite hunky-dory. I also do not believe that Christians will be snatched out of an increasingly chaotic world, except for those still alive when the day of judgment actually comes. For God will never pour out his wrath upon his own children. But despite all these things, a key passage of Scripture that we need to believe in and hold on to in these very trying days is where Jesus said, Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's in Matthew 28, 20. And guys, this is the bottom line of the issue, and it's the bottom line of this article. It's this. No matter what the conditions, Jesus is with us always god bless you thank you for listening to 
Truth Talks from Truth Is The Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, Truth Talks.